Good evening, everyone. My name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage for tonight. Um, so tonight we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, you can also look it up in your phone. And if you don't own a Bible, there are some um, in a table in the lobby, and we invite you to keep that as our gift to you. So once again, we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through I'm sorry, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. Thanks, Betsy. Well, hello, Doxology. It's good to be back with you guys. If you are new, joining us for the first time, welcome. It's good to have you. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are walking through First Peter. So First uh, Peter, First Peter is written by Peter, and Peter was in Jesus's inner circle of friends. And the trajectory of his life as he started off is very arrogant and brash and self-assured. He was a coward as well. Um, but at the end of his life, Peter realized that he belonged to Jesus, and that changed him. And so what First Peter's about is it's a traveler's guide to Christians like us who are living in a society where um, there's, there's a greater social cost to being a Christian. And I hope you guys have been enjoying First Peter, by the way. So, like, the first 12 verses in First Peter are just all... Peter basically pulling aside the, um, the curtain so you can see the grandeur of Jesus and the glory of the gospel that we have. So I hope it's been as life-giving to you all as it has been for me. Um, but as Peter continues here in these verses 10 to 12, you have to ask, like, why does Peter include this? So next week he's going to jump into, okay, in light of, every, of who God is and what he's done, now here's how you behave. But he's still going into the beauty of Christ. And so why does he say what he says here? And this is kind of a peculiar passage, like, the prophets, you know, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. It seems kind of esoteric and vague. Uh, but here's why Peter does this, because he knows he's writing to believers who, because their coworkers, even some of their, their family members and friends, are so opposed to what they believe and often think they're an idiot for believing in Jesus. Peter knows that his hearers are going to be put in situations or just start feeling like, Am I the crazy one? You know, like when everybody around me and my governing officials and so forth say that I'm out of touch with reality, like maybe, maybe I am. And maybe there's something to what the people around me are saying. And so what Peter does here in these few verses is essentially this. So historians and just basic observation will tell you that for a faith or for a worldview to be robust, for it to carry you through the vicissitudes of life, it has to be both intellectually credible and aesthetically satisfying. So both intellectually credible and aesthetically satisfying. So first, a belief that you have, it has to be intellectually credible. It has to be, it has to be true. It has to be rational. It has to be coherent. But not just intellectually credible, it also has to be aesthetically satisfying. So it has to be relevant to you. It has to move your soul in some way so that you find it beautiful. 
And the problem with a lot of Christians and probably what's going on for a lot of you in this room is you hold to one of those a lot more than you hold to the other. So for example, Jesus may be aesthetically satisfying to you. So you follow Jesus because he makes you feel good, or he gives you a sense of security, or he gives you a community, right, of people that can support you. Those are good and necessary things. But if you've never actually examined the intellectual credibility of your faith, what can happen is, like, well, one, what if Jesus is no longer relevant? So what if you're faced with a decision where all of a sudden it doesn't feel good to obey Jesus? Or what if intense suffering comes? Or what if you have a very smart, skeptical friend who's essentially, like, poking holes in the foundations of your faith? Well, then what happens is because you don't have that intellectual foundation, you can start to crumble. Or on the flip side, some of you may follow Jesus because you're convinced of his credibility. So basically, like, you you could write a book called A Case for Christianity, for example, um, and you mainly follow Jesus because you you believe you're right. Like, you love debate, you feel like, you know, more than all of your other friends, you've chosen the right worldview to hold to. But if Jesus isn't beautiful to you, then what happens, right? Like in all the small decisions of your life, whether it's how to spend your, your evening or how to spend your weekend or who you choose to date or how you spend your money, those decisions are controlled more by, okay, what's going to give me most immediate personal happiness now in the moment rather than what does Christ have to say about this? Because he doesn't stir your soul. He's not, you're, you're not filled with wonder by Jesus. Okay, and so what Peter does in this section is he says, When you belong to Jesus, you can be sure that you have something both intellectually credible and aesthetically satisfying. And so you can bet your life on it. And so just as your pastor, um, I, I don't want this to be academic, but I want this for you guys and for me as a community. So not just a year from now, but even if, you know, you're living somewhere else 50 years and, and we, you know, we're not speaking I want you to grab a hold of what Peter's saying here because this is so key to not just you like believing the right thing for the rest of your life, but actually living a life that's filled with wonder, which is what Jesus wants for you, and um, just being a bold witness for Jesus, no matter how hostile the culture is around you. Okay, so we'll just walk through this passage under those two headings. First, look at okay, what is how does Peter show us that it's intellectually credible, and number two, how does Peter show us that Jesus is aesthetically satisfying? Okay, so first, uh, following Jesus is intellectually credible. So verse ten says concerning the salvation everything you just talked about in verses three through nine the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories so essentially what peter's saying here is hundreds sometimes a thousand years before jesus came on the scene god speaking through the prophets telegraphed what he was going to do through Christ to save humanity and renew creation. So you have prophets like Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, like dropping all these hints, not just about that God is going to save humanity, but how he's going to do it. And so when Jesus comes on the scene 2,000 years ago, it's not like Jesus just pops up onto the stage of human history and he starts teaching these things and his reason that he gives for wanting you to believe him is is something like just trust me on this 
Like, just have faith. Now, Jesus does say, you need to trust me. But when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, it's like over 30 times. What Jesus repeatedly does is he appeals to what the prophet said would happen in history. And then he says, these things that the prophet said would happen are now happening in your midst. And so in other words, I'm not just, I'm not asking you to take a blind leap of faith in the dark. What I'm giving you is look at my life and I'm giving you something that's actually testable and rational and verifiable, like something that's rooted in history with a long trail of evidence. And so just to give a few examples, we could, we could be here all night. Don't worry, we won't be. Um, but just, just a couple examples, uh, you, you can find this everywhere. So one place is Micah chapter 5. So Micah was written about 700 years before Jesus came. And in Micah chapter 5, he says, But you, Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So you have to understand, when Micah said this, this would have made no sense because the town of Bethlehem was... Imagine, I don't know if you all are familiar with the town of Pulaski, Virginia. You, a lot of you may not be because it, it's a small podunk, podunk town and like way toward the tip of Virginia. I went to school near there, so that's why I know what the town is. But when you think of Pulaski, Virginia, you don't think of like history-altering leaders or events to come out of that town. Like that's what Bethlehem was thousands of years ago. But Micah says it's out of Bethlehem that the greatest ruler is going to come. And sure enough, Jesus, I mean, the most influential figure in history was born in Bethlehem. And that's where he came out of. Uh, Isaiah, writing, he wrote and spoke between 740 and 700 B.C. And so there, you can find it all throughout Isaiah, but one of the chapters where it has the highest concentration of things that he says Jesus is going to do is Isaiah 53. And so he's talking about the Savior that's going to come to save humanity. And he says in verse 2, Speaking of the Christ to come, he had no former majesty that we should look at him. And when you read the account, when, when Pilate, the great Roman governor, is looking at Jesus, like the response that Pilate has is, he's like, you? Like, you're, you're the so-called king that everybody's making a fuss about it? Like, you look so ordinary. And Isaiah said he would have no former majesty, you know, that we would be in awe by him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, next verse. He was despised and rejected by men, acquainted with grief as one from men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So in other words, against all expectations, this great ruler isn't going to be somebody that, you know, thousands and millions of people are following, but he's going to be somebody like, you know, normally happens with great leaders. He's going to be somebody who most people reject. And that's what happened. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. So here he's getting at to this great Savior isn't going to save through power, like you know any other leader will save through, but he will save through some form of substitution. He even uses language of being pierced. In verse 7, he says, he opened not his mouth in his own defense. So he's not even going to try to defend himself. Like when... When I'm guilty, I try to defend myself. Even not long ago, Kelsey was trying to, she was pointing something out in my life, and I kept trying to justify my actions. She's like, Steve, will you just admit that you're guilty here? I was like, okay, okay, yeah, you're right. And like, you know, when we're guilty, it's human nature to try to justify ourselves, but even more so when you're innocent, right? You want to justify yourself that Jesus, the most innocent person, didn't even open his mouth to defend himself. Isaiah told us this 750 years before Christ even came. 
And then when Jesus himself came, all the time he used language of, you see what I'm doing, this is to fulfill what happened and was spoken of in the prophets. In Luke 18, when he says we need to go to Jerusalem, he says this is so what was spoken of will be fulfilled. In Luke chapter 24, we looked at this on Easter, after he resurrects from the dead, he, he gives his disciples a Bible study lesson, and he goes throughout all the Old Testament scriptures, and he says, everything that you saw me do, like my life, my death, my resurrection, especially my sufferings, and now my resurrection and glory, were meant to fulfill everything that the prophets had spoken of. And so, here's the point to all this. Um, One of the things that makes Christianity so unique, in addition to the fact that it's salvation by grace, which is incredibly necessary and unique, what also makes Christianity unique compared to the other great religions of the world and uh, modern secularism is it's necessarily historical, meaning it matters that the events that are purported to have happened in the scriptures actually happened. And this isn't the case with other religions. And so I, I have Muslim friends, and so when I, when I talk, when I say this, know that I say it with great respect, especially Peter says, you know, this is grace that's yours. So as a Christian, we should never speak with arrogance or self-importance when we talk about other religions. But I'm just going to lay in front of you what the religious founders themselves would have said. So, for example, um, if you were to poke holes in the records that we have of Buddha's life or Muhammad's life, so we have records of, of how they lived and things they did, but if you were to, like, find out what is written that they did didn't actually happen, it wouldn't ultimately undermine Buddhism or it wouldn't undermine Islam. Why? Because those religions aren't founded on the life of the teachers. Like Buddha said, don't look at me, look at my dharma, look at my teaching. Muhammad himself would have been horrified if he knew you were worshiping him instead of God. Right? But it was all about their teaching. But with Jesus, it's not just his teaching, but what's necessary is his life. Like what he actually did. And all the evidence that ran up to it. And so for those of you who are here and... You know, maybe you're exploring the faith. This is something that I just want to respectfully nudge you on. Um, I understand you, there can be, you know, 20 different beliefs that you may have if, you, if you're not trusting in Jesus. But if you're here, in, so one example may be like something that's common in Arlington, D.C. is your position may be something to the effect of, you know, I don't, I don't know if God exists or not. There, there probably is some kind of higher power, but I think what's most important is that you just try to be a good person, and if there is a God, he probably accepts, you know, whatever pathway we take to get to God. What Peter's saying here, what Jesus himself would have said is, with all due respect, like, that itself is a faith position. So that, that itself is a faith that, A, uh, if there is a God, he doesn't care what you believe. Um, B, that you don't need a redeemer, somebody to save you, um, that there is no like bar of justice anywhere that needs to be satisfied through something like Christ's death. And that position, while it may feel comfortable, it doesn't have millennia of evidence leading up to it like you have with Jesus Christ. Or if you consider yourself um, more of an atheist or like a, 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 an intense like secular person, right? So you're like, oh, well, they're, they're probably isn't a god um just something to challenge you there with is for uh what's common in secular liberalism in our nation right now is for people who don't believe in god is to hold to liberal ideals you know such as we it's wrong for the powerful to oppress the powerless 
or it's wrong to discriminate against people of a different ethnicity than you, uh, or it's wrong to treat genders differently, uh, which, for, for the record, I agree that those are things we need to hold to, right? However, um, honest historians and sociologists who aren't Christian. So, for example, read a book by uh, Tom Holland that recently came out. He's not a Christian. Wrote a book called Dominion. And what Tom Holland Tom Hollins says in this book, is he says, he's, like, he's not a Christian. Uh, he grew up in a Christian home, but he's since renounced the faith. But he says, you have to understand, if, if you believe that, like, people have an obligation to not oppress the poor, to treat people of different ethnicities equally, that belief only is consistent in a Christian belief system. Where, we, where they believe that there's actually a personal God who created humans in his image. That's why they have value, right? That there is a Savior who gave himself. He gave up his power to save sinners. He says, but in a secular worldview where, okay, we just came about here by chance and it was some kind of accidental coalescence of chemicals amalgamating you know, together, you don't have a basis for human rights there because it's just survival of the fittest. Like, why not oppress the powerless if it helps you get ahead? And so that itself is a faith, like, I, I hope you hold to human rights, but just understand that that's not consistent with saying there's probably no God. That's a faith position that you hold to. And so I urge you to hear what Peter's saying here, where he says, look at everything that's been laid out throughout the centuries that God is so committed to you that he was willing to give up his only son so that you can find forgiveness and have life everlasting by following Jesus. And it's a free gift. And for Christians, as you're sitting here reading what Peter is saying, um, see, how, see how Peter says that there's so many parts about this passage that are mind-boggling. Uh, but one of the things that he says are, in verse 12, it was revealed to the prophets they were serving, not themselves, but you. So this may sound elementary, but like, what does it mean to serve somebody? It means to help them flourish. So how are the prophets helping you? The prophets were helping you by providing you evidence as a way to assure you. So the prophets are assuring you. Jesus is assuring you. The New Testament apostles are assuring you. That's what he means by those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. That if you follow Jesus, you are not a dummy. Like, you're not a fool for believing this. In fact, you're a very reasonable person. Because it was told throughout the centuries that God was going to save humanity, how he was going to do it, and then he showed up and he did it. So you can have confidence, even if people say you're holding to a, an archaic, you know, middle-aged belief system, you're actually a very reasonable person. So Jesus is intellectually credible. You can trust him. Okay, but he's not just intellectually credible. He's aesthetically satisfying. He's aesthetically satisfying. So where do we see this? We see this on the back half of verse 12. So the things, in other words, like what, who Christ is and what he has done, has been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, the apostles, New Testament authors, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look. I hope your mind short-circuited when you read that, like mine did. I, when I first started studying this book a couple months ago leading up to it, 
it blew my mind and it I still can't get off the floor a lot of times as I think about this so angels the word there for long, it's a word that means like a zealous desire. It's as if angels envy what you have. They obsess over looking into Jesus and what you have in Jesus. Now, I'm not an angel, but what I know about angels is they've been around for a long time. They are far smarter than you and me. And I imagine that it takes a lot to impress an angel, So if angels long to look into the gospel, if angels long to look in what you and I have, what we have is probably pretty amazing. And so how is it amazing? Well, one thing, when Peter says angels long to look in what you have, like one of the meanings of that is angels understand the gospel, but they haven't gotten to experience the gospel in the way that you have. So uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 says, Surely it's not angels that Jesus helps, but the offspring of Abraham. Referring to if you are trusting in Jesus, you're an offspring of Abraham. So, Jesus helps us, not the angels. Here's what that means. So, angels get the gospel in an academic sense, but haven't experienced it. Why? Because they've never fallen. They've never had to be redeemed. And so, it's a little bit like this. I've never been skydiving but I have friends and family members who have been skydiving, and they tell me, you know, they brag to me about their experience and how I need to do it, and I can cognitively understand what it's like to go skydiving, right? But I haven't personally, like, felt the rush of euphoria that happens from jumping out of a plane and the ground is rushing toward you. You can see the horizon 360 degrees around you, and then the surge of relief that comes. I imagine, you know, when you pull the cord, it's like, oh, thank goodness, the person packed the parachute correctly, like, I don't know firsthand what it's like to experience that. So in a sense, I'm missing out. So for angels, like, like they don't know the rush of relief that comes from being a saved sinner, from being redeemed. For Jesus didn't die for angels. But Jesus gave up his life for you and me. And so think about that the next time you're feeling dissatisfied with your lot in life or you're envying somebody else, that you are the envy of angels. It helps to put things in perspective. It helps you feel privileged. It should. Because Christ is so aesthetically satisfying and beautiful. But number two, um, why can't the angels stop gazing into the gospel? And I think the key is in the very center of the passage... Like at the heart of everything God has done is, see, all this is about the end of verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Because there's nothing more beautiful than somebody of infinite power and beauty giving up their power and beauty to save people who are physically and morally ugly and completely deficient. And that's what Christ did. And so this is why stories like the Chronicles of Narnia appeal to not just Christians, but, but everybody. Because why? Like, what's the climax of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Where Aslan, so he is the, he's this giant golden lion. He's the great king. He's majestic. And he gives up his life for this despicable character named Edmund. So Edmund betrayed his brothers and sisters. Right, so that he could just get what he wanted, essentially. And Aslan gives up his life for Edmund. And if you haven't read Narnia, um, 
your homework is to read Narnia this week because you need to. But to C.S. Lewis, he writes this scene where Aslan, this great, you know, majestic line, gives up his life for Edmund. It's a, it's a, it's a direct pointer to what Christ did. And I just want to read it to you um, to hopefully help bring to life something that may have become so dull. You know, if you find yourself just kind of shrugging at what Jesus did for you. And so here's what C.S. Lewis writes in the Chronicles, in line with which in the wardrobe is Aslan is walking toward where the evil witch is with all her goons to, to kill Aslan. So Susan and Lucy, like they're the two little girls, they're walking, like holding Aslan's mane as they walk up to where the queen's going to grab him. And it says, and Aslan looks at the girls and he says, oh, children, here you must stop. And whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. And the girls cried bitterly and clung to the lion and kissed his mane and his nose and his great sad eyes. And Aslan walks toward the crowd of monsters and the witch. And as he does this, Lucy and Susan held their breasts, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Bind him, I say, shouted the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found he made no resistance at all. Then others joined in and rolled the huge lion over and tied all four of his paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave, though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight they cut deep into his flesh. Then they dragged him toward the stone table, and the witch shouted, Stop! Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the sneers as masses of curling gold fell to the ground, and Aslan looked small and different without his mane. Muzzle him, shouted the witch, and even as they put on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost the three of them their hands. But he never moved. Should remind you of Isaiah 53. And this enraged the rabble, and everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid earlier began to find their courage, and for a few minutes Susan and Lucy couldn't see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures kicking him, spitting on him, jeering at him, slapping him. When once Aslan had been tied onto the flat stone, a hush fell onto the crowd, and as the witch wet her knife and stood over Aslan's head, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now who is one fool? Did you think by all this you would save the human traitor Edmund? You have lost your own life and not saved his. In this knowledge, despair and die. And the children couldn't bear to look at what would happen, and they covered their eyes. And as the story continues, the great stone table that Aslan was lying on the next morning, it cracks and the, the, as the sun's rising, Aslan returns from the grave, and you know he ushers in spring into Narnia. And with Edmund, the one who he gave up his life for, he doesn't just forgive him, but he gives him a crown. And he says, you belong to me, and I want to invite you to be a part of what I'm doing in the world to vanquish evil. And like, why is this story so moving? And the reason it's moving, it's because it's just the faintest echo of the story that angels never cease to tire, they, they never cease to tire of hearing. It's the faintest picture of the story that, that the angels can't stop reading. Why? Because there's nothing more beautiful 
than somebody of great power and beauty giving up their power and beauty to save people who are morally reprehensible. And that is the true story of the world because Jesus Christ, the greatest king of all, who's more beautiful and powerful than anybody, he sees you in your fears. He sees you in your indifference toward him. He sees you with the demons that plague you. He sees you in all your deficiencies and says, I want you to belong to me and I want to make you whole. So I'm going to go to the cross for you to be judged for your sin in your place and then rise from the grave so that you can have forgiveness, so that you can have security, so that you can have a promise that your deepest longings will one day come true. And I'll be with you until the new creation when you get there. That's that's beautiful, is it not? The like the greatest promises that this world has to offer you are so dim compared to belonging to Jesus. He was prophesied about through the prophets of old. He confirmed their prophecies in his life. His life was attested to through the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. He's intellectually credible, he is aesthetically satisfying. And so the next time somebody asks you, like, you, you really believe in Jesus? I hope your answer is an immediate, confident, but humble, yes, I do. He holds up to scrutiny, and I would long for you to, to know him. Can I tell you about him? And the next time you, I mean, this is going to happen tomorrow. You're going to find... Jesus boring or something else more compelling or the next time you're suffering remember what Peter says that there is no one more aesthetically pleasing and satisfying than Jesus and when you belong to him you are the envy of angels let's pray Uh, Heavenly Father, you are so great, and I thank you that belonging to you is both intellectually credible and it it moves our souls. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, just who you are, Lord, um, we need to wonder. I feel like I at least have lost my sense of wonder over who you are, and so I pray that uh, your glory will move us throughout this week and help us to be a people that um, hold to you not just with our minds, Uh, but with our very lives. And so continue to minister these truths to us throughout the rest of the service. And as we live with you throughout the rest of this week, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.